evening for the reading of Holy Scripture, we turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9, we're going to read the first 19 verses, and those 19 verses are the text for the sermon. So we're obviously not going to read those again. Daniel 1 through 19, 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him, and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done, as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us, Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities 
and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and has gotten thee renowned as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we consider from the Word of God this evening a most remarkable and astounding prayer. It is, in the first place, the longest prayer that is found in the Old Testament. And the only prayer that is longer is the intercessory prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ that we find in John chapter 17. Not only that, but the occasion itself is a remarkable thing. Like the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, who similarly makes prayer of intercession. This is a prayer made at a time of great darkness and despair of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, the Holy Spirit, by giving us this prayer, is teaching us that there's something very, very important about this prayer for his church. Remarkable also is the motivation for this prayer. Daniel is moved by the word of God to make this prayer that was given to Jeremiah the prophet. From the prophecy of Jeremiah, he has come to know that God has already prophesied that his people will return to Jerusalem after 70 years. 
You will find that in the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 25 and in chapter 29. Remarkable also is that Daniel, who learns this, is by now an elderly man who has spent his entire life virtually in the captivity of Babylon. And he himself will not be able to benefit from the deliverance for which he is praying. He will die in that land of Babylon. Not only that, but he is praying for something that God has already promised. And he doesn't sit back and say, now since God has promised it, therefore no need to pray or to use as an excuse to not pray, but it moves him to pray. Remarkable also is the nature of this prayer. Like the prayer of Jesus in the New Testament, it is an interceding or intercessory prayer that has many components. In general, to intercede or to make intercession is to plead on behalf of another to a higher authority. This prayer is first of all a confession of sin and a request to God for forgiveness that is based on the name and mercy of God. Secondly, it is not a personal prayer, but a corporate prayer. It is made on behalf of the nation and the people of God. It is also not an exclusive prayer, but an inclusive prayer, one where he includes himself in that for which he prays, including the confession of sin. It is a prayer that pleads not for physical blessing either, but a spiritual benefit. Fifth, it is a prayer uh, for deliverance that includes confession of sin and request specifically for forgiveness. And hopefully you will see too that this is a Christ-like prayer. This is the pleading of Christ himself, in fact, through the prophet, and is also a model prayer for us. Consider with me this evening the prophet's interceding prayer, the confession, the request, and the significance. There is much in this astounding prayer makes the preacher reluctant even to attempt to preach on so much. And the prayer in many ways speaks for itself. But I will attempt to break the prayer down into some major components to help us see the significance and the parts of this prayer. And 
I will also attempt to demonstrate the various parts and points to actual statements in the prayer and perhaps it might be helpful too to have your scriptures handy as I will be making more references to the text due to its length than I might ordinarily do. This prayer begins with confession. It is an example and an expression of true repentance by faith. This confession of repentance includes, we may even say begins with, a very dedicated and careful preparation of the prophet's heart and mind and even his body. That's a remarkable feature of this prayer. This prayer is the result of his own study and understanding of the Word of God, particularly the Word of God as it was revealed to his contemporary prophet, Jeremiah. Remarkable is what Daniel is not doing. He is not as an elderly man passively waiting for God to take his life. He is not simply sitting there content with his own considerable knowledge of the Word of God as a prophet, or sitting there as if his work is all done, nor is he jealous of his fellow prophet and his prophecies, or even ignorant of those prophecies, even though God had given that word to the prophet Jeremiah in the land of Judah, Daniel is aware of that word and receives it as the word of God. Daniel, through study and prayer, had an insightful and we might say obedient understanding of the word of God. Daniel's understanding and Daniel's knowledge here is not a natural knowledge or inherent knowledge, but that which was developed, even developed through his own study of the Word and prayer. That's a remarkable feature here that we learn that Daniel did not make this prayer even by some sort of special revelation, God speaking him to him directly as he would often do to the prophets by direct revelation. But this came through his own study and prayer in obedience to God. Daniel especially was aware of the relationship between God's sovereignty and prayer. Was aware of the relationship between God's grace and his own obedience. He understood the purpose and use of prayer as meant by God. 
And he saw even that the Lord had prophesied of that about which he prays. He is aware through his study of the Word of God, of his own responsibility as a prophet of God. But even as a prophet who received direct revelation from God, even revelation that would become part of the Holy Scriptures, that he was called to be in the Word of God and to pray, something we have seen about this prophet in his ministry. As a part of his dedicated and careful preparation, we read in verse 3, he set his face unto the Lord God. Reminds you of Jesus making his prayers with his face toward Jerusalem, which with his body then reflecting his heart, that his heart is in Jehovah God who lives with his people, as well as expressing a determination to complete his task. That persistence of the prophet is also brought out by his repeated address of God. O Lord God, O Lord, and O my God, he repeats at least 11 times in this rather brief prayer. In the prayers of many, such repetition may be a reflection of blasphemy or of superstition. In us, it can be a sign of carelessness, but it can also be evidence of dedication, of zeal and desire in prayer, such like that which is indeed commended by Jesus in his parable of the inopportune widow, or like Jacob wrestling with the angel. Notice also that he doesn't doubt the power and grace of God, though he has, from a human viewpoint, certainly good reason to do so. The prayer makes clear that Daniel is well aware of the many repeated gross sins of Israel against God. Why would God be gracious to such a people? Then there is the holiness of God, which he repeatedly refers to. He even speaks at the beginning in verse 4 of God being the great and dreadful God. And in verse 7, that God is the God who possesses all righteousness. Furthermore, he is aware that the present state of Israel in captivity is due to the Lord's hand and that very righteousness and great and dreadful quality of God. Nevertheless, he approaches the Lord by faith, believing in the grace and mercy of God. This also explains the preparation he makes with his body 
something perhaps that we might consider as over the top. Nevertheless, notice he prepares by removing the robes of his office and puts instead stackcloth on his body and he even stops eating to fast. Verse 3. We must see this as no mere tradition or even an attempt to appease God somehow. But that sackcloth indeed represented the sorrow of his heart over the lowly state and poverty of the people of God in their present situation. And that fasting represented the knowledge and understanding of his heart of utter dependence upon God. Next we notice about this prayer the confession itself. It is, as even the children here can clearly see, in the main, a confession of sin. About that confession of sin, one of the most striking features in this prayer is the prophet's inclusion of himself in that confession of sin, as indicated by the repeated use of we rather and not I or them. Striking, this is because we know that Daniel himself personally was a holy and righteous man who was exemplary in his life and obedience to God even in the face of death so that he personally was not even guilty of the sins about which he confesses and includes his own name. And yet, that should not surprise us. Is not this the way that Jesus himself taught us to pray? Regardless of our own personal sins or the sins of others, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This use or inclusion of himself as we expresses his understanding of a number of things, which is why the Lord also teaches us so to pray. Number one, the covenant responsibility of all the people of God as members of the church. He understands fundamentally we do not exist in the church as an individual, and God does not save and redeem mere individuals, but saves and redeems only by inclusion in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that body of Jesus Christ is united in His person. Therefore, there is always a covenant or communal responsibility and guilt as well as deliverance. Number two, he is aware of his own real personal guilt even with regard to these sins and even though he personally may be regarded as a holy 
and a righteous man. Daniel, like we ought to be, recognizes that although it may not be his practice to bow down to the idol gods like many and even most were doing in the nation of Israel when God carried them away, that nevertheless he was prone to worship idols and found that in his heart from time to time. It also expresses that we of his prayer, his knowledge of the Catholicity of the Church. Catholicity of the Church is expressed even when Daniel includes, not simply in his prayer, the people of Judah, the people whom God had carried away into Babylon, but also the nation of Israel. That's brought out when, in verse 7, he refers to those who are scattered in many nations and places. Daniel here recognizes not only the sore state of the nation of Judah, but the nation of Israel that had been carried away long ago and had not been seen from since. He recognizes, therefore, the church Catholic. It is not sectarian or private in his viewpoint, but Catholic. There is also in that to be found his own love for the church. And even a recognition here that as a prophet of God, he is a mediator in the church. He is a man who has been called by God to know the plight of the church, to understand its sins and iniquities, and to mediate, to mediate as a prophet of God. As a man of God, he also feels pity for that church in its lowest state and desires to do something as a man of God. Next, about that confession of sin, notice that the prophet confesses the serious nature of the sin. That's brought out by the many, many names that he uses for sin. He does not simply pray for the forgiveness of sins or confess sin, but he refers to that sin also as iniquity and wickedness and rebellion. Verse 5, for example, or trespass, verse 7. All of those together give a complete description of sin. Sin, as that term makes clear, is to miss the mark of perfection set by God's own righteousness. Iniquity sets forth the truth that sin is a perversion of that which is right. It is to deliberately take that which is right and make it wrong. And if the deliberation part of it is not made clear, the word rebellion does. The word rebellion makes clear that whatever is done against God's law, whatever that is done that misses the mark, is a deliberate act on the part of man 
and the nation. Wickedness refers to sin as being dirty and vile and gross. Dirty and gross and vile compared to God and compared to the standard of God and even as it should be in the eyes of men. And trespass adds that these are repeated transgressions of the boundaries that God has established for man to live in and in which he is to dwell. Notice also about the serious nature of sin that the prophet confesses that he speaks of it as the sin of all. It is the sin of all the men of Judah and of Jerusalem and even all Israel and all Israel that are near and those that are afar off. Those that were in Jerusalem and those that are through all the countries. He makes no distinction here that this is the sin of the rich or the poor. No distinction between male and female. He even includes the king as well as his subjects, the princes as well as the working man, the descendants of Abraham as well as the strangers. He makes no distinction between the character of the sins of some and the character of the sins of others. He makes no distinction even between the sins of those who were lost in death under God's judgments, himself, or even God's elect. We, we all, we all, in every sense of the word, have sinned. Notice too about the nature the serious nature of that sin, he confesses that it was a sin that was stubbornly repeated and even ongoing. Verse 7, the sins we have committed as at this day. Confesses that the sins of the people of God was not ignorance, was not a one-time thing, but sins that were deliberate, were willful, and were rebellious, and repeated, even ongoing. And lastly, about the serious nature of the sin, he confesses that it was essentially unbelief. Speaks about the fact that we made not our prayer before our God, verse 13, that he might turn us from our iniquities and understand the truth. The idea of that phrase, understand the truth, to which he asks God or acknowledges they had not prayed, God turned them to, does not mean that our sin was simply a misunderstanding of ignorance of God's truth, but he's indicating there that faith is knowledge, and knowledge is always of the truth. Therefore, when there was no understanding of the truth, He's saying that their sin was pure unbelief. Unbelief in God. And it was essentially to give themselves in faith, a false faith, of course, to another God. Notice also about this confession that the prophet confesses specific sins 
of which they are guilty before Him. They did not obey God. He emphasizes that. Verse 6, we have, not, we have not hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name. Or verse 10, we did not obey the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Notice the omission here of the prophet that the voice of the prophets was not really the voice of the prophet at all, but the very voice of God. That's often the excuse one gives for not listening or stoning the prophet. This is not the voice of God. That, the prophet sees, was part of the unbelief and the sin of the people. And that's what so aggravates our sin in the face of God. That we persistently sin deliberately before His face as it's revealed in His Word. We hear the preaching of the Word. We hear what God requires of us. And we reject it and turn from it and say no. Another feature of that with regard to the specific sins of which they were guilty was that he recognizes that not only was their sin, as he states in verse 5, willful rebellion from God's precepts and judgments, but was therefore then the sin of apostasy, or what he calls departure. We have transgressed, verse 11, even departing. Lastly, in this confession is a confession that the judgments of God they received were just and fair, that they deserved all that they had received. That is, our sins and God's judgments are our own fault. What's remarkable about that is the severity of them. He makes that confession in spite of their severity. He says about the severity that there has been nothing done like what God did to Jerusalem in all the earth. He says it was essentially, in verse 7, God driving them away from His presence. It was a forfeiture of His covenant love. He brings that out by repeatedly talking about confusion of faces in verses 7 and 8. They were supposed to live face to face with God, receiving the gracious face of God and having a kindly, loving face toward God. A face that was a face filled with the glory of God rather than shame before the nations that describes confusion of faces, the shame and consternation that always results in sin and especially God's judgment of our sins. They are designed to cause confusion of face, to make us know and understand the displeasure of God in our sin as well as embarrassment before others. 
He even speaks of God bringing upon them the curses and oaths written in the law of Moses and understands that as God keeping his own promise. But he says that's the judgment we deserved. The confusion of faces, he writes, belongs to us because we have sinned against thee. Verse 8. That is, it was right and just of God because of our sins. It was just of God because they were well warned by God by the law of Moses as well as the voices of all the prophets. And even makes clear here that this was necessary for God to do to preserve His own honor and glory. He has confirmed, he writes in verse 12, His own words. In other words, God must keep His word even with regard to His judgments. Next we consider the request. True repentance True repentance is a confession of sin. It is, as we have seen, a despising of ourselves and our sin at its very core and an admission that God's judgments of us are right and true. And repentance is always followed by a request for forgiveness. That's what he requests here in the whole and in the main. Forgiveness of sins. Significantly in verse 19, although he makes this request in a number of places, is summarized as hear and forgive, hearken and do. That is, hearken or hear and then do by forgiving. We notice, first of all, the emphasis upon God hearing and hearkening. He made that request also earlier in verse 17, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, that is, his requests. He does not take for granted that God will listen, but makes it a part of his petition that shows all by itself this prayer and this request is an act of faith. By that, the prophet is recognizing, first of all, that prayer itself is a gift of God's grace, and second of all, that God even hearing our prayer is an act of His grace. It's a recognition that God does not hear all prayer that calls itself prayer, or may even take the form of prayer. That he understands that God does not simply hear his prayer because he's praying or because of anything in himself or his own worth. It's a recognition that before God acts, he must first listen and consider the request itself. Having recognized that, and although it comes in many forms and is stated many ways, the one great act of God that he desires is forgive. Forgive and do. This is a reflection of the reality that this is really the one thing 
any child of God desires of God. Why? Because he understands by faith that if God has forgiven us, then every single other blessing of salvation and fellowship with God necessarily follows. That is a remarkable feature of this prayer. We all know the actual deliverance that he desires. We know that from the motivation for his prayer. What he desires is that God restore the people of God. That he deliver them from the bondage they are in, in Babylon, and bring them back to Jerusalem. What he desires is that Jerusalem and especially the temple of God be built again, that God might dwell there and they might dwell with him there in the promised land. But that's not what he requests. You won't find that stated explicitly in the prayer. What you do find is, Lord, forgive and do. And the doing there is that of forgiveness. And if one wants to know why, it is that reality he knows. If God forgives our sins, then all is well. But more specifically regarding that forgiveness, we may break it down and notice there's a positive and a negative side of it. Negatively, he expresses it this way, for example, in verse 16, Let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. This is a remarkable description of the disposition of God toward his own covenant people. He doesn't suppose God was angry simply towards some and not others, but he punished all anyway. Rather, he sees the anger and the fury of God upon all because this is what all deserved. Remarkable too, because he does not, even though he knows this to be true, that God loves his people and God is gracious to his people. Make no mistake about that. Nevertheless, season what God has done, his anger and his fury toward his city and his, notice, holy mountain. This is really the beginning and even essence of all forgiveness. Forgiveness begins with the appeasement of one's anger because it is the cause of separation and the lack of fellowship. And that anger is the expression on continued guilt. If forgiven, then God must not be angry. Positively, he expresses that request for forgiveness this way, cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate. That's the following verse 17. Notice that's the opposite of anger and fury. Cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary. That's an expression 
of an attitude of favor and grace towards someone else and expresses the purpose of forgiveness that there might be fellowship again. Beside that negative as well as positive aspect of forgiveness that he requests, notice also that he adds in verse 19, and defer not. That's worth noting too. One wonders why he even adds it, even as one might wonder, of course, why he even prays. That belongs to the remarkable nature of this prayer. Not only is the question, why does he even pray? Why does he even pray? Because God has already promised to return them. Has God not already promised that he is gracious and favorable to them? Has God not even promised that he's forgiven their sins and iniquities in a very real way? So why make the prayer? But has God not already promised too that this is soon, very soon, that will be delivered? So why pray and defer not? That is, do not delay any longer or take any more time to forgive us. Rather, forgive us and forgive us now at this instant. Part of the reason the prophet makes, and there may be other reasons too, but understand, and this is something that I'm hoping we are seeing here, that when we pray, we are reflecting what we feel in our own heart and in our own soul. And when Daniel prays, defer not, he is expressing this sort of thing. Lord, forgive us now and restore us now because we can't take this anymore. We've reached our limit. We've reached the end. We see and we understand. That's the expression there. Now we would be remiss if we did not notice also a great feature about this request that is very evident in the passage which is the basis for that request. One of the amazing things about this prayer is exactly that. That the prophet makes clear that the basis, the foundation of his request is not that he repented or the people repented or even that they've had enough, that they can't take it anymore, or even that they believe by faith in the mercies of God, but rather pleads directly the name and the mercy of God himself. He makes that explicit, in fact, that he requests forgiveness not on the basis of anything that either he or they are in themselves or even had done by their own strength. We do not present, he writes, our supplication before thee for our righteousness. Because previously we were unrighteous and now we see ourselves as righteous or obedient or holy or anything else. Fill in the blank. 
And notice he even excludes as the basis the prayer itself. Not even because we have prayed. For this is not the reason we have prayed. Notice that. Prayer is a means by which God is pleased to give us His grace and provide what we need. But never do we pray on the basis of the prayer itself. Nor does God answer on the basis of the prayer itself. Always in His grace. Notice the basis is a few things. In the first place, who God Himself. Who God is Himself. Verse 9, because mercy and forgiveness belongs to God. Though we have rebelled against Thee. What a way of phrasing that. Not simply even that God is merciful and forgives us. But God is merciful and forgiveness belongs to Him. Even though what belongs to us is rebellion. Righteousness and holiness are not only qualities God reveals in His Word, but are what God is and what God delights in. God delights in mercy. He delights to forgive. Someone sinning against God is not by itself an excuse to claim he is unmerciful and will not forgive. It's worth pointing out. It's really what man does even when he says, I'm too great a sinner for God to forgive, or my sins are too great. He forgets that forgiveness has nothing to do with himself whatsoever. It has to do with God. And saying your sins are too great impugns the very name as well as the grace and mercy of God. Notice also, he makes it a matter of God keeping his covenant, not we keeping the covenant, because that's been demonstrated to be false. Implied clearly in all the language of the prophet is all we've done is broken the covenant, transgressed the covenant, trampled under feet the law of God. But God is the God who keeps the covenant, keeps mercy and love. Verse 4. It is he knows God as the covenant God. He knows God as the one who has made a promise. Indeed, a promise to redeem and therefore also forgive his people. Oh yes, God has promised to bring them into captivity because of their idolatry and to judge their sins, but has also promised to redeem them and to save them. And he understands the keeping of the covenant is in God's hands and is essentially an act of God. We don't keep the covenant as such. And any covenant keeping that belongs to us as our part, we might say, is essentially an act of the covenant keeping God. God makes God keeps and God maintains His covenant. And that's the basis upon which He makes His request. 
Following that, the basis for this is because of God making them who they are. God had made Jerusalem, and God had placed Jerusalem where they are. God did this, he writes, God has made us a reproach to all that are about us. And the point there is that if one understands God has done these things, then by faith one believes that God can undo them. If one does not believe God has done them, then one will never go to God to undo them. Again, because of his mercy and grace. Notice there too, because this city is thy city, and this people are thy people, and are called by thy name. And essentially, therefore, an appeal to God's name. If we bear God's name, then we may appeal to that name and for God to vindicate that name in his mercy and grace. And yet there still must be another basis for this request, a basis for God to hear even this prayer and then in his grace and mercy to forgive. And here too, the prayer itself is evidence. Part of the evidence is that the prophet doesn't even request the restoration of Israel, but forgiveness, strictly forgiveness. There must be a basis for God to show mercy and even forgive, because God is a righteous God. God does not show mercy to all and grace to all, and there must be a basis for showing that mercy and grace and keeping the covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments even when they don't. Besides that, the curse of the law of Moses is not simply fulfilled by any temporal judgments, but required eternal ones. So what is that basis? What would the prophet be looking at and thinking about when he made this prayer, even in the time of types and shadows? You know the answer. It would be the pouring out of the curses and wrath of God and the righteous judgment of God upon himself for his own name's sake, upon his own Son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit on the cross. And that, you see, is ultimately the name of God to which he appeals. The basis of the mercy and the grace of God upon which he pleads. And the only hope the prophet has for restoration by God hearing his prayer. Is that not also so with us. The significance of this prayer is many. I will be brief. First of all, we ought to be very aware 
that in spite of other significances, this is a model prayer for us. This is a prayer for all of us. This is a prayer for your pastor to be making on behalf of the congregation and that he must look to as a model in his prayers to God. A prayer that he and all the prophets of the Protestant Reformed churches should be making for our denomination. For all of this holds true. How dare we, even as Protestant Reformed prophets, pray only to God about the sins of others, and then to pray even beyond the walls of the denomination, but rather to look at the church as a whole. A model for us prophets as well as prophets, priests, and kings in our prayers to remember because so easily, even when we pray, we think only of our sins and then might even easily think to ourselves, well, how can we be guilty of these things for which God is judging us? Or ask, why is God judging us? Why is God dealing thusly with us? Oh, it's those people over there. They need to repent, and they need to come before God. Use this as a model. Even though one might have a life pure and holy like Daniel, we, we have sinned, and we have done terribly in thy sight. Even more so, the significance of this prayer is, as I indicated, the very prayer of Christ. Christ will make his own intercessory prayer as only Christ can, and pray things that only Christ can. But isn't it wonderful and remarkable, beloved, especially as we would make such prayers? And would this not be a motivation for such prayers? Why is it that we so infrequently pray like this? Why is it that we so frequently pray, perhaps even only for our own sins, and then only major sins, forgetting the so-called minor ones? We're so quick to point out all the sins of other congregations, or other elders, or other prophets, or other people, or other denominations, because we forget that there was another that made this prayer as only he could, and is the real basis, only basis, for making such a repair. And even the one that explains why we would even find repentance in our heart at all. Read this prayer sometime soon from the perspective of Jesus praying for you and for me knowing better than we do for sure what we had done to God and His glory and how we have sinned against His goodness and grace. And God poured out His fury upon Him in a way that made what God did to Jerusalem 
and 70 years of captivity look like nothing, just a picture. And God did all that, that he might atone and pay for the very sins for which we ask God now to forgive us. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father, make this prayer our own, and we are thankful that it is the prayer that is given to us to learn from and be instructed and to delight and joy in our Lord Jesus Christ as well as have confidence in our own sins and iniquities, corporately and individually, to come always before thy face, abhorring ourselves and our sin, confessing thy just judgment and goodness, and pleading thy mercy and grace for thy great name's sake. Amen.